This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hello and welcome. Uh, you're listening to Fourth Estate, the show where journalists talk journalism. We're coming to you from 2SER in Sydney on Gadigal lands of the Aurora Nation, right across Australia on the Community Radio Network, and directly to your device across the globe via podcast. My name is Peter Frey, and tonight's producer is the inestimable Nina Capel, who, if you don't like me, will be presenting the show next week. Coming up... Tracy Spicer has launched the Now Australia campaign, which aims to tackle sexual harassment and abuse in Australian workplaces. What role does the media have to play? And in Planet Facebook, Mark Zuckerberg has responded to the Facebook data scandal, apologising and promising to do better. But is it all too late for the social media giant? And also on the show, Malcolm Turnbull is approaching his 30th negative news poll. That was the magic number the Prime Minister cited two years ago when he rolled Tony Abbott. But are we all going to get terribly sick of hearing about news polls? Joining me in the studio is Anne Davies, investigative journalist and Gold Walkley winner currently with The Guardian Australia, and Emily Watkins, media reporter at Crikey. Hello, Emily. Hi, Peter. And joining us on the line from Canberra is Michael Coziol, the political reporter for the City Morning Herald and The Age. And I have a quick question for you, Michael, before we get started. And it's the obvious question, are you miserable? <laughs> oh, as miserable as um, our former uh, editorial boss uh, says we all are. Oh, that's... Um, that's well, <laughs> uh, I-, I can only say, Peter, that um, uh, here in Canberra, as of my standard line on the experience is that... Um, there are ecstatic highs and horrific lows, but the medication evens everything out. Mm. Well, we'll get back to the medication and the miserable life of journalists or not later in the show. But first, let's get on to it with some Tracy Spicer. So Tracy Spicer launched the Now Australia campaign this week, the local answer to Me Too, with the obviously laudable aim of tackling sexual assault, abuse and other things, bad things in the workplace. It's the Harvey Weinstein of Oz, and will it work, or will Australia's defamation laws prevent it flowering in Australia? Emily, what do you think? I don't think it will prevent it. Um, I think our defamation laws definitely make it more difficult than in the, than in the States, um, which has sort of been um, very often referred to. Um, but no, I don't, I don't think it prevents it. I think it just means perhaps a bit more work in cultivating sources, um, in uh, standing up the facts, in making sure that the reports that um, the media does publish are um, defensible um, under our defamation laws. Although so far we've seen, say, in a couple of cases, but in notably the Geoffrey Rush matter, that that's proved very quite difficult. What, what is the lesson that the media needs to take from what's going on at the moment? Well, I'm, I don't have any inside knowledge of how um, 
the Geoffrey Rush matter was investigated and reported by the Daily Telegraph, but, I mean, perhaps it could be that um, a little more work could have been done in standing that up before it went to the presses. Um, I mean, that's still before the courts, yes, though, so sure. I, I suppose we're not... We're not going to get too far into it. No. <laughs> no. So, Anne, you've dabbled in law and you've seen the inside of a few defamation cases. Yes, I have, uh, <laughs> So, when we reflect on what Tracy is trying to do with the me, uh, the Now Australia campaign, um, how hard a role do you think she's you know, giving herself and what role do you think the media is going to play in that? Okay, well, I think Tracy's got a much broader agenda than just... Um, you know, having stories out in the media. I think the idea of now is to provide some support, other outlets for people, counselling, you know. It, it's quite a broad platform that she's set for herself. Um, and she... This all started because um, at the union and at Women in Media, we thought we should have a call-out in the wake of the Harvey Weinstein um, affair and she found herself just deluged with people not just from the media but from all walks of life and so it's really important to try and find a way to help those people and not just it's not just about stories yes I know part part of it of course is a uh, part of the initiative is telling more women's stories right and getting female vo- voices heard loud and clear mm. Uh, again, so if this is, is this a bit like the New York Times gender initiative? It's sort of for journalists to make a conscious effort to do that, to tell women's stories? Um, I think it's more about um, trying to change to call out bad behaviour, first first and foremost, but also institute cultural change. And one of the things they've talked about doing is running leadership courses for for people in positions of power so that they run different types of workplaces and don't tolerate it. Um, And, you know, when we sat around the table at Women in Media, we were all amazed that we all had stories of pretty inappropriate behaviour that we had just squashed down and not dealt with because Mm. it was easier. Yeah, right. So, Michael, um, do you think Tracy Spicer will change the way you work? Well, uh, I don't know if it will change the way I work. Um, but do you mean in terms of... Um, well, does it, do you think it will change the way you think about reporting? I'll, I'll give you a quick example. Mm. I remember interviewing the editor-in-chief of Bloomberg uh, a few years ago, and he, they, he put out a directive that the people in Bloomberg were to try and speak to female executives before males. And it actually had mm. a really interesting effect on their reporting. And the payoff at Bloomberg was about a couple of years later, a lot of these female executives became the CEOs that had great contacts. So there's a benefit there to if, there's, if that Bloomberg thing follows through. So maybe the lesson here or maybe the action here for journalists is to consciously go out and make sure that they talk to female voices. Yeah, look, that I agree with. Um, and I, uh, I mean, I've had personal um, <laughs> lesson to learn in this when writing a kind of long feature about the same-sex marriage campaign and how the legislative change was um, uh, uh, was was brought up pointed out um, the next day when it was published that I'd managed to write 2,000 words without interviewing a, a single woman and that was uh, uh, an inadvertent oversight uh, that comes from doing something rather quickly but uh, you know when you look back on it you kind of think oh shit I, you know uh, that, that that is kind of obvious uh, and you know in politics it can be very difficult because uh, well you know at least on the government's 
benches at the moment, uh, the majority of people are men, and so the majority of people you're dealing with are men. But uh, no, I think it's a, a, a very, very valid point and something that we always have to be conscious of is, um, you know, have you, have you made the effort to, to get uh, more female voices in yeah. there, even if they're not, like, the most obvious person, even if it's not the CEO or the, you know, go-to spokesperson on something. Yeah, I mean, what you just described is sort of an endemic, uh, hidden sort of patriarchy, really. Not that I'm not that I'm accusing you, yes. it, it, accusing <laughs> you of being part of it, Michael. But no, it's, a, it's obviously not possible to break out of that in every single story. It's not possible to do this every single time. But you know, if you can think about it every once in a while, that's better than not thinking about it at all. What do you think, Emily, about that? Yeah, well, I mean, it's something I come across as well. I report on the media. You know, a lot of academics, a lot of um, Editors, senior news figures are men. So when you're looking for sources or um, just people to quote in stories, that's something I come across quite regularly and it's something I'm not that good at either because often when you're on a deadline, you go back to the person that you have spoken to before, who you know has been quoted before, is um, you know can give good quotes, is available. Um, so it sort of ends up being this confirmation bias in that you keep going back to people and because they have been men in the past that's who you go back to but I think it's something that we all need to think about in Mm. um, you know even if that means taking an extra five minutes to make another couple of calls or um, pulling together a database of women who will speak to you which is actually something I think Bloomberg has done or is doing Um, yeah I I think it's something that we all have a responsibility to do and not just women as well but um, people of colour or you know people outside the um, that dominant um, person who's quoted so there's a long way to go finally on this point uh, and what is the next first step in in you know this campaign Um, well I think the most important thing is to uh, make it accessible for people so that they can tell their stories and also get some sort of result out of it because it'll be very frustrating for people if they've had bad experiences but they can't actually then find a a way of venting it whether it be through the media or through some sort of other process or just telling the story and getting it out of their system yes getting it out is better than keeping it in yeah indeed thank you you are listening to the fourth estate with emily watkins uh, from crikey uh, Anne Davis from The Guardian Australia, and Michael Cosio, political reporter for The Age, The Sydney Morning Herald, and probably a whole heap more websites uh, on the line from Canberra. I'm Peter Frey, and we'll be back soon. Welcome back to Fourth Estate on 2SER, and joining me, Peter Frey, this week are Anne Davis from The Guardian, Emily Watkins from Crikey, and Michael Cosio from Fairfax in Canberra. It's been another huge week for Facebook, the people we used to like with the capital L, but are now under fire from politicians and consumers here, there and everywhere uh, for its role in the massive data breach by Cambridge Analytica, a company linked to Steve Bannon, uh, Donald Trump's former advisor, and the smooth-talking Old Etonian called Alexander Nix. We're not going to rehearse uh, too much of this story because uh, Nina, uh, Nina Kapel, covered it very well in last week's uh, Fourth Estate. Um, and you can catch that on the website or on a podcast, I advise you to do it. But rather than to ask a rather simple question, which is, is Facebook jumping the shark? Can And can journalism and journalists actually live without it? Anne, 
the, the Guardian's sister, the Observer, played a very key role in the breaking of this Cambridge mm-hmm. a- Analytica story. What do you think? Well, I'm not a huge Facebook user. I find it intrusive and I don't like posting stuff about my life on it. So I'm probably, they've probably got a very imperfect profile of me. However, um, I do use it a lot for work. Um, I use it to trawl through and find people. I um, use it to look things up um, and to keep in touch with the news. So it's clearly a really important platform. Uh, It's just how much do you want to give away of your own life on it? So you won't be hashtag delete Facebooking just yet? In terms Uh, of a work tool, anyway? No, I would find it very hard to function without Facebook. And therein lies part of, of course, the great attraction of Facebook. I was uh, hanging around a little bit this week with the Atlantic's Franklin Forer, who was here for a, uh, a few talking arrangements, and he suggested to me, sort of off camera, that uh, one of the anti one element of the anti Facebook thing is really a kind of journalism psychodrama. So we're playing at this sort of revenge, given they stole all the advertising money, so we're getting back at them um, in any way we possibly can. What do you think, Emily? Oh, I, th- I think that's probably over-egging it a bit. Yeah, possibly, possibly. <laughs> but, do you think that, but do you think we've reached this sort of tipping point with Facebook? I mean, there, there's, you know, well, you can't really tell from two weeks, but there is a hell of a lot of uh, people piling in on this on all, on all levels. Well, yeah, I mean, I don't know anyone personally, though, who's deleted Facebook since the Cambridge Analytica story came out. I'm not sure... I mean, I, I'm not sure if anyone else has, but I haven't seen any particular figures or stats about whether that's um, something that's trending but not actually happening in actual action by people. I mean, I probably wouldn't delete Facebook just because of of the, that story. Um, yeah, look, I, I don't know. I think do, it's a, do, Well, what do you think of all these apologies? Zuckerberg's apology... Uh, but so he's going to appear before the U.S. Congress, but it looks like he's not going to go to the U.K., so they're very upset with him in the U.K. We have the local head of Facebook also doing a very similar thing, apologising again today. Um, so all these apologies, I mean, what are, we, what are we watching here? Are we watching kind of a damage mitigation by Facebook on one level? But are we also seeing this kind of, if you like, the emperor's clothes being revealed for what Facebook can do? You know, the- well, I actually think the problem is embedded in Facebook's business model, Mm. which is it's about harvesting people's data. That Mm. is the business model. So they're not really in a position to fix it. All they can do is say, well, be more responsible with your data. But to me, um, you know, I guess that's why I'm not such a big participant in it. I value my privacy and I don't really want to put it all out there. But my children do. Mm. I mean, I guess one other thing to say is that Facebook, uh, you know, this is a historical story on in some levels, and Facebook says it's changed its protocols since then. Do we believe them? I mean, this is the other element of this story, isn't it? This trust, trust element. What do you, what do you think, Michael? Do we, well, should well, we, the, do we believe Facebook? The other Facebook? element of it is that, um, it, I mean, I didn't know this until this week, uh, that some other journal friends down here in Canberra informed me that uh, the Facebook app on your phone uh, actually uh, gives to Facebook your phone's metadata uh, of your texts and calls, um, which sort of freaked uh, some of my journalist friends out to the point where they have deleted uh, Facebook from their phone, at least. 
um, because they're worried about potentially their sources being subpoenaed. Um, if it ever came to that, now I mean, I sort of, it's not something that particularly has bothered me. But uh, oh, well, I would have thought uh, journalists have a protection against that. But well, I mean, I, I, yes, uh, number one, I would think so. Number two, I mean, it's, you know, if, if, if they were to go the, to that length, then it wouldn't be, at least as a journalist, you wouldn't be um, ratting out your sources. Well, we'd all, be, be, we'd all be in jail, wouldn't we? It'd be a very large we'd all, prison. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that'd be the the supermax for journos. Um, so do you trust Facebook? I mean, like, well... OK, can I ask another question? Probably not less than last week. Yeah, a little bit less than last week. Can I ask a quick question of you, though? You're in Canberra. You know, the ACCC inquiry into the social media platforms is about to play out, and this is one for you too, Amy. Um, do, how do you think this event, this sort of global event, is going to play into that inquiry, which I'm told, reliably told, that there's a lot of uh, eyes on this from around the world. This is quite a strong inquiry that the ACCC is about to launch, or is launching. Yeah. So what, do you well, have... it should give it some... I, I don't have any particular insight, but you would think at least... Uh, from a narrative point of view, that it would give it some extra oomph, um, some extra weight, um, and that it would, you know, that, that this story would compel people in their testimony and evidence to kind of go the extra mile to shine a bit of a light onto what goes on. Mm. Um, Emily, what do you think? Oh, look, I think it has to come up. It has to be... In- I, I can't imagine any way that it wouldn't be considered. Um, I mean, it's an incredibly broad um, inquiry. The um, the terms of reference are, are quite broad. Um, and I'm also interested in what um, Google and Twitter and the other big players... Um, what they're, how they'll they'll come at, at it as well, because obviously they're all being considered as digital platforms together. Um, yeah, look, I mean, I'm not sure specifically how, how it will be considered and, and come out. But well, we've got a long mm, way to go yet. Of, of course. course, yeah. And, and you know, I mean, they haven't even put in submissions. Yeah, no, yet, it's, yeah. It's, it's it's coming, uh, but it will be. I mean, it's basically going to do the work that the Senate inquiry into public interest journalism sort of started doing, and then. Another inquiry. Manifestly failed to. Manifestly failed to do. But we did get the regional innovation package out of that. So we should all be thankful for that, apart from The Guardian, who have been expressly uh, excluded from getting money. Yeah, because we're actually a powerful multinational in the background. The last time I looked, there was only about eight of us in the Sydney office. (laughs) Ah, But eight are many. We'll say it again, Michael. The Scott Trust is a beautiful thing. I wish I had a Scott Trust. I think we all wish we had a Scott Trust. Yeah, don't we all? Uh, thank you. You're listening to Fourth Estate, and I should just say, by way of disclosure, that the Centre for Media Transition, which I'm a co-director of, uh, has received funding from Facebook to do a project into trust and journalism. Um, it's entitled Falling in Love Again, How Can Consumers Love Journalists Again? Which is probably the subject of another show, and more about that when I have some answers. Uh, you are with Michael Cosio from Fairfax, Emily Watkins from Crikey, and Anne Davies from the Garden Australia. And you are with me, Peter Frey, and this is The Fourth Estate, coming from you from 2SER. Back soon. Thanks for listening to The Fourth Estate, where journos talk about journalism and a few other things besides that. Uh, joining me are uh, Michael Cosio from Fairfax in Canberra, Anne Davies from The Guardian, and Emily Watkins from Crikey. My name is Peter Frey. It's time to talk about polls. More specifically, the 29th news poll showing the coalition behind Labour just won away from the benchmark that the Prime Minister, Malcolm Turnbull, cited as he rolled Tony Abbott all those heady two years ago. Um, This is what Malcolm Turnbull said uh, when asked about it earlier this week. 
29 news poll is not good news. How are you feeling? Why are you smiling then if it's not good news? <laughs> you're so pleased. You're so pleased. Yeah, I know why. Because you're so happy about all the jobs we've created. Because you are not distracted by polls. Not distracted by polls. Actually, uh, Michael, I'm going to go to you in a second. But Anne, um, you thought uh, Turnbull handled that quite well. Yeah, I thought it was a pretty good um, repost from him. Uh, got to his main message, which is the economy's going well. Um, and that is one of the things he has in his favour, that the Australian economy's chugging along and, like it or not, um, there isn't really a very easy alternative to Malcolm Turnbull for the, for the leadership. Oh, well, that's entirely true. Again, that's probably a whole new show. But um, <laughs> tell me, uh, you, but even if, just talking about the media, uh, is, is it going to wash if every time someone asks Malcolm, because they're going to do it for a lot in the coming weeks about these polls, that he's going to just turn around and go, yo, we've created 420,000 jobs? Yeah, well, I think he probably will do that. <laughs> you can keep running the same clip. Um, he has to be good-natured about it. He has to treat it as a joke or make light of it at the very least. And that way, I think he can deflect a bit of the sting that is in his own words, that 30 polls was enough. Mm, indeed. Michael, um, journos love polls. People in the gallery love got polls more than anyone anyone I've ever met anyway. So <laughs> that, that this next news poll, number 30, will hold a special place in the collective hearts of the, of the Canberra folk that you hang around with. My, my question to you is, yeah. It's a kind of rather broad sort of question, but how much do you think the gallery should care about this? Well, uh, I think it is going to care. It's going to be a media event uh, that week. Um, uh, it, there's no doubt about that. Uh, and, and, and also a political event, uh, not just that the Prime Minister's making, but now, of course, Tony Abbott will be using it in reverse. You know, apparently he's got lots of speeches and interviews lined up um, for that week. So he'll be he'll be adding to the... To, the mileage that, that's going to come, um, but at the same time, I mean, I think it will kind of it, it, it'll come, it'll happen, and it'll be a big news for that week, and then it will pass. Mm. Um, so you you sort of don't. I don't think the media should be you know putting any kind of long term significance onto this. Mm. Um, you know, I mean, and and you know, Malcolm Turnbull, he, perhaps he can laugh it off. Uh, he's also dealt with it in a serious way before, I think it was with Lee Sales, um, when he sort of made the point that, well, that was only one of the things, one of the reasons that I gave for rolling Tony Abbott. You know, I also talked about economic management and returning to proper cabinet government and all of that. Uh, and so people will be thinking about those things as well. They'll, they'll know that they're behind in the polls. But, you know, as, as we mentioned earlier, they'll also know that there's no obvious alternative. Mm. Um, I think a little, fast forward six months, and we start to get towards the end of the year and if things are still looking bad uh, and people start to think about losing their seats at the next election, that's when this might become much more serious. Well, there'll be a whole new benchmark by then. Wouldn't there be sort of like 35 or 36 polls? But, uh, <laughs> yeah, that's, I, I guess that's what right. I'm getting at. come up with that line. You've lost 40 in a row. Yes, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> be Abbott's line. Um, I guess what I'm getting at, Emily, is that um, journos are often blamed as being obsessed with the wrong things or, or more to the point that journalists and pollies kind of feed off each other's own obsessions. And someone, you know, someone, a populist politician will turn around and go, well, why don't we talk about what people actually care about? So do you think this 2930 poll thing is exhibit A in that sort of debate? Yeah, it could be. I mean, I'm not necessarily opposed to um, 
to holding politicians account to account for things that they have said publicly. And the, I mean, it was undeniably something that Malcolm Turnbull did say. Um, but yeah, I do feel like perhaps the emphasis on it is a bit too much and it does feel very um, echo chambery to me. Um, this constant um, reference back to this one single comment that Malcolm Turnbull mm. made. And I feel like perhaps that's being emphasised to the exclusion of perhaps other issues that do matter to real people um, out in the suburbs, out in the country, um, who are, you know, just living their lives. Well, that goes to the question, and whether journalists are real people. Oh, <laughs> they're real people. But look, I'd just say, you know, the issue here is this is something that the police set up themselves mm. as a benchmark. Mm. Yeah, and point. so it's absolutely legitimate to report it. I have no doubt the public would prefer to be talking about something else. But if you look at the ratings of what stories they're reading, I think you'll find they're reading the poll stories, they're reading the stuff-up stories, and they're reading the flim-flam around politics just as much as they're reading my water stories. And there are fine water stories too, if I may say. <laughs> but I would, uh, Michael, maybe the final point on this one is that a, one of the reasons why people talk about the poll story is it goes a little bit to character, right? So Malcolm used that, you know, it goes to how Malcolm thinks and how Malcolm used the polls to roll Tony. So do you think, therefore, it's a legitimate <laughs> thing to keep banging on about? Yeah, look, I mean, it, it, as um, as we just said, it's uh, it, he's going to be hung by his own words on this. But at the, at the same point in time, I don't think there's anyone out there sort of saying, well, he should fall on his own sword and, and go of his own volition. You know, he's failed his own test, time to pack up. Because, uh, you know, in the broad scheme of things, most people think it was good that he got rid of Tony Abbott. Um, people didn't like Tony Abbott, so... I think they'll forgive him for, you know... Was that, a, was that an editorial comment? I think it was. <laughs> uh, well, I, I think it's one that's borne out by some evidence. <laughs> I think the only person who... Uh, the person whose column I'm most looking forward to uh, when it turns 30 is Peter Van Onselen, who I think wrote about a column of the week after Turnbull said, his first column about... I'm going to write this column for 30 times. It was a gift to Peter Van Onselen. You know, a gift to columnists. What do you think, Emily? Well, and, and Peter Van Onselen, sorry, has, uh, right. has uh, attracted a program from Tony Abbott already this week. Uh, yeah, there you go. They're uh, sticking it to uh, Peter Credlin. So, yes, that should be a good one. There's a lot of content there for columnists, for Sky News evening presenters. <laughs> There's hours of content <laughs> Talk back. there. That's right. So, finally, uh, and well, we're going to return to a, a cheeky question I asked Michael at the beginning of the show, which is, um, are journalists miserable? So, the background for this one, if you missed it, is that the former head edit of editorial at Fairfax, Sean Almer, certainly thinks that uh, journalists are miserable, complaining to Mumbrella that journos not only are miserable, but they leak like sieves, uh, and they made his life hell when he was uh, at Fairfax. Um, I should note, and to be fair to Sean, that he did backtrack from that, and I think he was trying to say sceptical, though miserable and sceptical are not really the same meanings. So anyway, by then the damage was done. So Emily, you seem a perfectly happy person to me, but are you deep down very miserable? Oh, look, I would say I'm overall not miserable, but you know, I mean, there are things in, in this industry that can uh, can be a bit depressing, which may have also been what uh, what he was getting at, especially at Fairfax. It's been a tough, tough few years for Do, do you think being miserable helps you do your job or understanding the dark side of human nature? <laughs> 
Oh, look, I think if you um, always took the best view of everyone and the best view of every situation, you probably wouldn't find the best stories. Yeah, that's a fair point. And you have spent a considerable amount of, of your career in the house of misery that is Fairfax, according to Shea <laughs> um, How would you rate your experiences on a scale of 1 to 10, on the misery scale of 1 to 10, working in Fairfax? Well, it used to be a lot of fun, particularly when you were the publisher, Peter. Um, It was, um, no, look, as the resources have got thinned down, it's uh, obviously become a much more challenging place to work. And poor old Sean Aylmer was head of editorial at a time when he had to get rid of a lot of people. And, you know, there's just never-ending pressure on budgets there. So... um, I sort of have a little bit of sympathy for him. Having said that, to my mind, he was shooting the messenger. People are, were miserable because they were losing their jobs. Got <laughs> <laughs> every reason to be miserable. That's right. Uh, so finally, a quick question for you, Michael. In the space of this show, have you got happier? Um, I, I've, I've got happier as the end has approached and I, I, I've um, uh, get closer to going to Simon Birmingham Strengths, yes. Well, enjoy the minister's drinks. Of course, there you go. You can ask him about the 29th and 30th polls while you're there. I'll be sure to. Please do. Please do report back to us. Thank you for listening to The Fourth Estate and to uh, our extremely wonderful, generous and happy guests, Anne Davis from The Guardian Australia. Thank you, Anne. Thank you. Emily Watkins from Crikey. Thanks, Peter. Michael Cosio, who's off to drinks with the minister from Fairfax in Canberra. Thanks. And I should just say that, you know, we, 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 we might be miserable and insecure, but we do still have the best job in the world. So we should, you know, remember that. Yes, we should all remember that and be thankful for, um, well, what for? For getting up every morning and with a smile on our faces. I would like to make a special mention to the Fourth Estate's producer, Nina Coppell. I'm Peter Frey. Have a great night.